All right, let's do this one last, last time. time. My name is Gwen Stacy. My name is Peter Parker. My name is Penny Parker. My name is Peter Parker. That's Treasure Planet. Flint's Trove? The loot of a thousand worlds? You know what this means? It means that all that treasure is only a boat ride away. Whoever brings it back would hold an eternal place atop the pantheon of explorers. He'd be able to experience... What just happened? If you stay in this dimension too long, your body's gonna disintegrate. Do you know how painful that would be, Peter Parker? Uh, I don't know. You can't imagine. And I, for one, can't wait to watch. What did you say your name was? My name is George from Austria. I am Crit from the UK. And today, we're gonna be talking about 3D and 2D merged animation. Discussing Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse but first, starting off with the 2002 movie Treasure Planet. So this movie was for quite a while, when I was a child, my favorite movie actually. I have a very specific fond memory of it when my dad used to like organize, I guess, birthday parties, but they were just like, I had friends over and we were with tents we were camping kind of in the garden yeah and once it was dark my dad would use his <laughs> beamer that he had from work uh, we already had a beamer back then uh, to show us uh, like an outdoor cinema type of thing on our house wall and this was specifically the one movie i really remember of those parties like that's the one that stuck in my mind was one of those years I love this. Since then, I have returned to it every now and then, every few years, and also looked more into it behind the scenes and stuff like that. And it's a really interesting movie, actually, historically speaking, and from like the perspective of what it meant to Disney as a company at the time, what it represented and how it ultimately failed at the box office and even beyond that but we'll go into all of it what was mm. your experience now well okay so as we know when we were setting up this episode i hadn't seen treasure planet mm -hmm. um it was one of those that just flew under the radar as a kid i always got this movie mixed up with uh atlantis which i'm i feel like is the experience of a lot of people but the only thing I actually knew about this film was that it was just a massive flop, like, financially for Disney. Yeah. And that's kind of all I knew. And so I never had that childhood attachment to it. So I watched it for the first time the other day, and I think it's fine. <laughs> and that's, that's pretty much it. I, I, I don't right. hate it by any measure. I think it's, it's a well-made movie, and I think the animation, for sure is a spectacle and it's super impressive mm -hmm. but story-wise and stuff character-wise i'm it's fine you know i don't i don't love it i feel like i feel like it's the premise of a cool mission you know on a video game mm -hmm. but nothing much more than that for me i feel like if i had seen this when i was a kid I would feel much stronger about it. You know, because there's a lot of films that I super love now, which are realistically not that 
great. They're just fine, you know, fine animated films. But, you know, you have that childhood attachment to them, so they're instantly magical every time you see it. Absolutely. But yeah, that's just not my experience with this film, um, which which does make me sad. <laughs> because, <laughs> no, you know, I, mean. I, I, I love to love movies. <laughs> yeah, makes sense, makes sense. Yeah, I just, I have such little to say on Treasure Planet. Um, it's kind of embarrassing. Oh, I have way too much to say on it anyways, but I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna uh, pull a little things, uh, a few things out of you anyways. Okay, let's go. Have you had any experience with Treasure Island adaptations? Because, you know, this is the working title of this movie was literally Treasure Island in space. Oh. So this is adapted of the classical novel Treasure Island, which itself had very many uh, classical, more cla traditional adaptations. Do you know, I, that didn't even like register to me because I have seen the like 1950, I think it is, Treasure Island, mm -hmm. which I'm sure is adapted from that book. Yeah. Because um, I believe it is a Disney film also. Yeah. Disney made one adaption before this. Yeah, I had... I have seen it, rather, but uh, I don't really remember it that well. It's it's one of those films my dad loves and wanted me to love. Interesting. Yeah, because that's the thing, I feel like, with this movie that to this day doesn't hold, maybe quite hold up as well as the more technical aspects of the animation and so on. The story has some issues and... Even like as you pointed out, the the scope of it all might be a little underwhelming and feel more like, uh, I guess a, a computer game, a video game mission. That's I feel like all due to the original story. There's actually quite a few liberties they took with this version of it, and it's incredible in basically every aspect they added on to the original. So the original really, really is just a little boy going on an adventure story. And there's no stakes at all. There's no character reasoning behind anything. A few examples. In Treasure Island, the dad never died or, or went away or anything. The whole relationship between Jim, our protagonist, and John Silver, the pirate is is kind of built in this movie surrounding the themes of a secondary father figure someone jim can attach to since his own father left when he was very young and this is is never has never been anything in the original the reasoning for going away and proving to his mother that he isn't a failure that he can rebuild what he destroyed with them burning down the you know the the restaurant or whatever she has there at the beginning that never happened in the original so the original really has a lot of issues of the things are just happening without a reason but here they found justifications and they found character points in which everything makes sense i guess my biggest personal flaw with the whole story is the character Ben. 
um, the robot guy that shows up like two thirds throughout yep. the movie. At this point, you're so attached to all the characters. Everything is established. The universe makes sense. And all of a sudden, you get this funny, dorky side character. And you don't care for him at all. <laughs> and this is... Yeah, like, go ahead. Okay, so... I'll, you know, watching the film or whatever. And then they bring in Ben. Voiced, by the way, by the great Martin Short. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I hear Martin Short's voice... I do get really happy and excited. I do love Martin Short. And I love Ben. Ben's probably my favourite character. But... That's hilarious. The problem is, he does come in way too late. Yeah. Like, Ben's allowed to be my, you know, favourite character because, I, as I said, I didn't really connect with anyone. Mm -hmm. So, it's not like I was already super invested in these and then they've just thrown someone into the mix mm. you know i just i was kind of disassociating with everyone anyway so when ben came in it was like i don't need to associate with ben i don't need to relate it's just it's you a new character and yeah and i yeah i really liked the performance i love the way he looked also mm -hmm. so that was great but i can see like from a, a mostly objective standpoint you know as objective as you can be mm -hmm. He does come in far too late. Yeah, and that again is an inherited problem of Treasure Island. Ben in the original is a kind of crazy guy stranded on, on an island they find that then serves basically the whole the same purpose as Ben does here. Right, yeah. So yeah, he does he does come in far too late i feel like yeah. they could have introduced him at some point like at the pier you know before actually getting on like i get his whole purpose is that he's you know gone crazy and he's um lost his memories and all that crap but mm. yeah, i just problem... don't see a way of making it work really yeah yeah it really is that um the problem is you kind of have to it, it only makes sense to introduce him on the final planet because, you know, there's the treasure, there's where he would have been abandoned. And even if Ben found his way away from there and they randomly picked up on it, it would be super weird because what are the odds that they randomly stumble upon the one robot that knows where the treasure is? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think the way it could have worked is if they didn't try to make him so integral. Yeah, that's you know, just... like he just shows up for yeah. about ten or so minutes to just push the protagonist forward a bit more, and then he just slowly backs out of the story mm -hmm. and to you know? serve as a choke machine because the big old Disney executives needed more funny in the movie. Yeah, that, that <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely fine. I mean, that's what Martin Short's best at. You know, he's a he's a comedic actor. Even with his voice, he's very good at it. So, yeah, I'm not saying that Martin Short wasn't a great idea oh, no, no, for no, no. if I, you want to make a funny yeah. character it was more the i feel like the, the, the movie didn't need flawed. didn't need a funny character you know it, yeah other I mean, than that it's pretty serious yeah that as well like it's it's other than that it is a pretty serious movie for a disney animated movie and morph already serves as a kind of funny little sidekick so Side, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, no, I totally do understand, like, where he does not work. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? 
What are you going to do? Though? It's in the original story, so I see why they would mm. want to bring him in. And also, I like the way they did utilize his purpose, at least. Because I don't remember him from Treasure Island, but obviously in this he serves the purpose of his memory gets taken and then given back and then he tells them obviously the planet's going to explode and mm. blah 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 blah. So he does have some narrative purpose which I feel like in the original he may not have as much of. I cr don't quite remember but I feel like he serves pretty much the exact same purpose. So he's just a crazy dude, he forgot a lot of things but things are slowly coming back to him and he by the end like is an integral part in finding the treasure. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I think it's pretty much the same character, just a crazy dude instead of a robot that lost his memory chip on a more, you know, literally losing the memory. I mean, uh, you know, robots are just cooler than crazy dudes anyway, so. <laughs> it's fine. I do really love the aesthetic of Ben, though, but that just plays into kind of the aesthetic of the whole film. Yeah. You know, I was um, I was talking to some folks that we know after after just first seeing the, the film. And I was saying that, you know, I wasn't super feeling it and whatnot. And then they were saying that they would love for this film to get a live action remake. And hmm. I felt disgusted. Yeah. Because they were claiming they loved this film. And yet they were also advocating for a live action remake of it. I don't even love this film, and that would be blasphemy. Because yeah. easily the greatest quality of this film is the animation. Yeah, the animation is incredible in this. The style of this movie is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And the whole gimmick of the, the 3D combined with the 2D yeah, works excessively well. Yeah, they, they really merged three technologies there, actually. Um, cause all the characters are obviously 2D classical animation, and there's elements that are the made with the technology, which is like generally 3D animation nowadays. In particular, uh, Silver's arm, the glider yeah. of him where he skates on. Other than that, a lot of the rest is done within a program that Disney made, which was, I think they invented it for Tarzan. Uh, it's called Deep Canvas. It's kind I've of- I've heard a, of Deep Canvas before. Yeah, it's kind of a 3D program, but applying 2D textures to this 3D space. And it's just a, yeah, it's kind of merging the workflows of 2D and 3D. It's pretty expensive. <laughs> and they used it for the, like the, the entirety of the big ship they are on, the whole set basically is within deep canvas. So that's the main budgeting reason why this movie got yeah. so expensive. Also, like, I feel like if you ever did make this into a live action remake, mm -hmm. you would lose so much of what makes the character designs special. Mm hmm. Like, for sure. For, sh for sure, Long John Silver. You know, the way that his arm is animated, mm -hmm. I don't think would translate as well as, like, a realistic three 3D, you know, object. And I mean, 
it is already a 3D object here. I know, but like, it's still an animated 3D object. Yeah. If you get what I mean. Yeah, Whereas yeah. if it was a live action, it would have to be a, a realistic 3D object, which... um. I feel like the bigger problem might be within the character designs of the crew. I was going to say Captain Amelia would look super weird. Yeah, she... I feel like the... The first, I, I, I love that we're having this discussion right now. <laughs> how how well an adaptation of this would work. Uh, the the first commander kind of guy that dies throughout the movie. Yeah, um, um, arrows. Yeah, he could actually work fine. There oh have yeah, been, absolutely. Because the, the it would be kind of like the the stone eater character of um never ending story. Yeah, um, don't know if you've ever seen it. I have, yeah. That could work in kind of a stone eater character design way. But yeah, a lot of the others, like this, not my favorite character, by the way, but the flatula guy, or, or whatever he was called, <laughs> that just spoken yeah. in farts. How Man. the hell are you gonna adapt that into a realistic looking <laughs> render? The other crew, like the guy that's like the head and the belly, and the spider guy, mm -hmm. is the it, insect. Is that Scroop or whatever? Um, Sounds about right. I think they could look cool in a sort of body horror way. You know, if they wanted to make a live action remake <laughs> very dark, they can make them do yeah. look scary as fuck. Make it R rated and kind yeah. of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Do you know what? Actually, <laughs> I take back what I said. Um, <laughs> if they. Right, I want this. I want a live action remake now. I want the live action remake and I want it to be R rated and a horror film. Yeah. Then and then I'm on board. This, yeah, this works. This <laughs> but works with entirely like a, for me. But but with like a two hundred million dollar budget still. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't obviously. cheap out on this one. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm on board now. Yeah, perfect. Let's let's call up Disney. If if you're listening <laughs> and I know you are, like obviously, just call us. We we, we got this figured out. Hey Disney, you know those live action remakes you're doing? Do you wanna do you wanna make one on probably the biggest flop you've ever made? <laughs> I'm gonna get into that later on. Uh, but the Black Cauldron might be the biggest flop ever made. It almost ruined the company, and it was written by the directors of this movie. So that's I was all. gonna say it's I, a part I, of this story. <laughs> I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna uh, spice up the conversation a little bit, but. Do kind of prefer the Black Cauldron to this film? I have seen it once ages ago. I couldn't tell you a thing about it. Like, even though the animation in this is gorgeous, mm -hmm. I love the aesthetic of the Black Cauldron. It is gorgeous. I guess coming back to this, to this movie here, um, I have like notes from the very beginning. So yeah, just go this... for your notes, man. This, there's this Disney trope of opening the movie with this, you know, uh, fairy tale kind of book cover opening and the narration yep. telling us the story. And I love how this movie does that, but gives it a little spin. So we open with literally that and nothing feels out of the ordinary. It's just like a, a Disney opening, you know. It, it only lasts for like... 30 seconds or something until there's this reveal of the little boy reading this holographic book, I guess, or l watching it, looking at it together with us. 
uh, we get like a background for our protagonist. We get a, a great excuse for this kind of opening narration. We have additional magical something world building with the inclusion of a holographic book. You know, it's it's nothing that ever gets brought up again, but it's just it widens how the world works. I think it's fantastic world building. It pays homage to the original with it being a book. You know, if you do holograms, you might as well do anything. You know, it could be all out sci-fi, but they used uh, specifically a book to tell the story, which is lovely. And it's also already kind of showcasing the general design philosophy of the movie. So the rule set they applied to pretty much everything within this movie is 70% Victorian style pre-20th century and 30% sci-fi technology added on top. With just a simple rule set in mind, the whole thing perfectly fits together. I think a lot of the problems with sci-fi often come from people just throwing things at the wall and they have great ideas and they might be great ideas individually, but they then by the end fall apart because it doesn't really all apply to the same rule set. Here it's beautifully done with a very simple concept. It's also probably one of the things I love most about it is just this style of and the contrast of styles. I'm pretty big on steampunk and I don't know what came first, this movie or my love for steampunk. This might be like the initial uh, <laughs> flame starting my love for steampunk. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just love contrast in in any design regards, and this does it perfectly. I guess we, whilst being on stylization, there's some great color theory in this. Our protagonist starts off in like a super dark, almost emo kind of black outfit. And throughout the movie, once he enters the ship, he is dressed in brown tones. And by the end of the movie, he is wearing the white uniform by the, what's it, a university or whatever he, he gets yeah. accepted to. Um, so really clear, but, but simple design choices there. Just individual stuff, just looking fantastic in this. So, for example, the whole hologram map unfolding and surrounding them is so stunning and almost feels like a <laughs> direct uh, pre-stepping pre stone to the things they did in Spider-Verse. And adding on to the Spider-Verse uh, design things, I feel like uh, really re-watching it this time, I felt like the final planet, the treasure planet itself, when they are on the inside, you have this, you know, hollow sphere with laser beams shooting towards the middle and them being stuck in within this chamber of destruction it really reminded me of the particle collider or whatever it is mm -hmm. in yeah. in the spider-verse movies so i wonder if if there's like maybe some some nod to that or if it was just purely coincidental on a less visual side of the comparisons 
in the Spider-Verse movies, we have all those contemporary music added into like montages. And even though it really dates the movie like to a very specific time, I think it's a charming thing. And this also applies here to Treasure Planet, where you have, I think, three uh, contemporary rock songs and no classical Disney musical numbers, uh, which is refreshing, <laughs> I might say. Mm, yeah. And it, you can clearly, due to them, <laughs> you can clearly make out it's an early 2000s movie, very much so in the music, but I think it's very lovely. I guess I want to get into the whole conspiracy side of things because yeah there is a treasure planet conspiracy <laughs> that and... sounds fucking ridiculous let's, yes. let's hear it <laughs> Fine. okay whatever i'll bite okay okay uh, first a little setup as i already mentioned since they used these different technologies to achieve this movie all merged them together and for the most part used uh, deep canvas throughout the whole movie compared to like let's say Tarzan where they used like 10 minutes of it. This movie was very expensive and this also was the reason why the directors never um, uh, Ron Clements and John Musker they had a lot of struggles getting this movie off the ground to begin with. So they initially already wanted to make this movie in the 80s. And since the last thing they worked on was the Black Cauldron, which we already pointed out might be the biggest flop in Disney's history and almost brought the company down, they were obviously denied their brainchild and uh, instead were ordered to do a few other movies. And if they turn out to be successful, they could do, do the brainchild. So they directed The Mouse Detective instead. Big success. 1987. Can we do Treasure Planet? Nope. Direct Little Mermaid instead for us. They did. Big success. 1990. Can we do Treasure Planet? Nope. Let's direct Aladdin instead. And then 1994, I think it was. Can we do Treasure Planet? Nope. Do Hercules for us. So, Hercules is 97. 97. Okay. Yep. But with all those movies and this filmography, they are basically single-handedly uh, the reason or like a big, big part of the reason for the big Disney renaissance. You know, um, well, yeah, I mean, Little Mermaid's the start of it, isn't it? Yeah, uh, either Little Mermaid or the, the Mouse Detective is considered the start of it, both of which are projects by theirs. Aladdin is a big reason and Hercules as well. And the only other that come to mind right now would be The Lion King. Yep, The Lion King. Um, there's also Mulan. Oh yeah, Mulan. Mulan um, as well. And Pocahontas, but we don't mm -hmm. mention Mulan. <laughs> <laughs> so they were, at that point, pretty much so important for Disney as a company that they couldn't say no anymore to them. And they were allowed to go ahead and do their ridiculous little pirates in space movie. So they did. And they went all out. And this is where we put our little tinfoil hats on. Because here's the thing. <laughs> 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 
they had already plans for a sequel in mind. They had worked on a script for one year. They had some storyboards for it. They had already the team behind it. Everyone was excited for the sequel. Conspiracy being that executives were not quite excited for a sequel that would cost a ton, whilst at the same time the all the new Pixar stuff was very exciting for the Disney executives. Mm -hmm. Bugs Life was a big success and uh, Monsters Inc. just came out and was a big success. So here is the conspiracy. Disney wanted this movie to fail. And there is a few things that kind of allude to that. So probably the the best example as to why peop some people believe this is when you compare it with the most recent release Disney made before this movie, which is Lilo and Stitch in 2002. Right. Lilo and Stitch had a giant, and I mean giant marketing budget. Uh, there were TV commercials like six months in advance before the movie released, with Stitch being put into several other Disney properties. So there was a, you can find videos of Skitch, Stitch kind of running across the ballroom of Beauty and the Beast. You can find him surfing with Ariel. You can find him standing on Pride Rock. And all of this kind of implied to kids, basically, this is the new cool thing. This is the new Disney thing. You have to check this one out. Lilo and Stitch got a Happy Meal. They had a big partnership with McDonald's. Lilo and Stitch was basically everywhere. And it was released early summer against no other movies, basically. Here's the thing. Treasure Planet had none of those things. And it was released right before Christmas against another Disney product, uh, Santa Claus 2, which Santa Claus 1 was a big success. So the sequel by Disney, they probably have to assume that it's going to be a big success. It's going to be a big starting weekend. They released it at the same time with Treasure Planet. And it's also the week the first Harry Potter movie was released. So Disney basically sent this movie out to die, to have a justification to shut down the, the really expensive 2D department and to pr more predominantly shut down the really expensive sequel of this movie and gain control over the directors that got so powerful within the company again. Tin foils off. <laughs> okay, listen. <laughs> I, I get where they're going, but respectfully, it's stupid. First of all, <laughs> first of all, Disney would not want one of their own films to flop, especially considering how much money went into it. Well, uh, I, I w do you, I mean, it's not the only one of that kind. There have been like the, the whole conspiracies th surrounding uh, the princess and the frog as well, where it was kind of the last, I think it was the last 2D movie Disney made. Yeah, it is. And it, where people also said, uh, or assumed that Disney kind of made this 
story with like the B team of the animators and sent it out to die to have a reason to finally shut down to the animation. But this is the thing. This is what I mean, right? Disney don't need a reason. If they didn't want to make Treasure Planet 2, they didn't have to send out Treasure Planet to die so they can say no. They could just say no. Mm. You know, they don't, they don't need the Princess and the Frog to flop to shut down the 2D anima uh, animated part of Disney. They yeah, but just they would not it. do it. They would kind of... like. Do you really think they would just go ahead and be like, oh yeah, you just saved our company the last 15 years with a, some huge successes. Some of the most, you know, iconic Disney products of all time are your work. And you all didn't want to do that, those movies at all. You kind of were assigned to do them. Now we let you do one movie and that's it. You're not going to get another one, even though it was successful. Like that, that's a little more hard to pull off than, oh yeah, turns out now you tried, didn't work out. Bad luck. Yeah, like it, they don't need to lie. It doesn't make sense. They d Disney don't need to answer to anyone. They, I mean, the Little Mermaid already pretty much saved Disney anyway. It brought them out of the whole fucking Silver Age that they were in. They were already indebted to these to these men infinitely. They still said no. And then obviously they went on to make Aladdin, which was a huge success for them and changed animation forever with the whole celebrity casting thing. Mm -hmm. They still said no. Yeah, because they're they, dicks. They, they can, <laughs> yeah, they could just do that. They're fucking Disney. Like, what's going to happen? I mean, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, what, what's going to happen if they just say no? I I feel like I feel like they could go to other studios and they could potentially lose w two of their most important people in the whole company at that point. I think honestly they don't care. <laughs> I feel like Disney would rather lose two of the best people that they have on their roster than show any sort of weakness. I, do, like, I don't think Disney actually give a shit. <laughs> I think they released Treasure Planet kind of just whenever because they didn't truly care about it. I don't think they sent it out to flop, but I don't think they cared about it. Mm -hmm. So they just put it out whenever. Yep, send it out. Yeah, but did didn't put it out whenever they put it out like at the worst possible point <laughs> i mean yeah in retrospect but at the uh, time uh, not really i mean you're saying yeah it came out the same time as santa claus 2 but it's completely is, different uh, which is a big disney product yes it's a disney product but it's, it's a live anim it's a live action film yeah, I can see how they don't think big... those markets are the same. Also, Santa Claus <laughs> is a Christmas film releasing at Christmas. This yeah, is that just makes a sense. regular <laughs> this is just a regular animated film. There's no reason to think that they should compete in that space. Disney put out movies at the same time all the time. That's just they make so many movies. They just do. There's gonna be cases throughout where they've released an animated film next to a live action film. 
People are just picking on this one because they love this film and it flopped and they want to find a reason why. <laughs> it happens Maybe. all the time. And then, yeah, it came out around the same time as Harry Potter. But realistically, who knew that Harry Potter was going to be the huge success that it was? Not there to could the have been. Yeah, Not to the could, degree that it was, an, that it turned out, but it was, it was obvious that yeah, it was going to be successful. Yeah, there was an inkling, of course, that it was going to be sort of successful because it came from a popular book series. Sure. But no one fucking thought that it was going to be Harry Potter, right? They didn't <laughs> think it would take over the globe, right? So they, you know, you can't anticipate that. Like, you, when, say, I don't know, uh, Avengers came out, you could probably gather that it was going to be successful, right? Because they had built up to it. People were excited for it. But mm. Avengers being so successful is the reason why the MCU is still running now. Because that film worked. That's it. And we could not have anticipated that. It just became a phenomenon. And I feel like people are just going, yeah, well, it's Disney's fault that this film flopped. Maybe it just flopped. <laughs> Maybe that's just what happened. I mean, the, the the reality is the film actually made a lot of money. It didn't it made like 110 million. Yeah, something. Which like which is a decent amount of chunk of change for an animated film. Like, especially of the time. And for a film that's still relatively 2D in an ever-growing 3D space. Mm. You know, this was, what, 2002? Yeah. Pixar had made about four or five films by this point. Shrek had came out a year before that. Mm -hmm. So 2D films were already on the out. So the fact that he made that much money is astonishing. Yeah, it but here's because the thing. Because it costs I, so much. I don't buy it that 2D died naturally. Like, I, there's, there's no fucking world where I believe the idea that Disney puts out that kids these days just aren't adept to 2D animated stuff. Like, they, no, no, that no, they no, wouldn't no, no, no. comprehend or understand or feel with it as much. I'd, Obviously like, not. Yeah. I think genuinely what happened was Pixar were getting successful with, two, uh, with 3D animation. You know, because it was very mm. revolutionary for the time. Yeah. And Disney didn't want to lose. Because obviously Pixar, you know, they're a new company. I mean, backed by Steve Jobs. You know, it, and I think at that they, point it, it was fully Disney owned, wasn't it? What do you mean? I think like Pixar was already Ooh. Disney. Like Disney at least was part of the producers starting from Toy Story on. They were involved from day well, one. And I think they owned Pixar already at that point. No. So they handled the distribution for Pixar, but they didn't actually have any creative control over at the studio. That's all that they handled was, I think, marketing and distribution. They didn't buy Pixar until 2006, which okay. was years mm. after this film. All right, all right. So they were already on the out, 2D anim uh, animated films were, because you know they were seen as the last thing 3d's come out and everyone's excited about it you know it was like when cgi first like really started happening you know everyone needed a piece of the cgi pie mm -hmm. um because it was just new and exciting and everyone wanted to be in it it was the same thing with um like universes 
you know, extended universes, and now it's a thing with multiverses. Yeah. You know, when something just seems like it's a new and big idea, everyone wants to get in on it, which is fair. And I think that's exactly what happened with 2D animation. You know, 3D animation happened, and it, you know, 2D became the old thing. So Disney kind of just phased it out in favor for doing 3D, which is sad because their 3D animated films, when that first started happening, fucking suck. They're so <laughs> bad. Whereas the 2D animated films they were making at the time, um, like The Emperor's New Groove, mm. amazing. Uh, Lilo and Stitch, amazing. Um, Treasure Planet, even though you know it's not really my thing, it's still a really good film. So, you know, it, it is sad, but I feel like it was just a natural thing that happened. And as we're seeing, like, kind of currently, 2D animation is kind of making a small comeback anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it might, it might just be my nostalgia and my copium and the collective copium of, like, a shitload of people on the internet who uh, believe in this. But I still... <laughs> I, just think, I just think motherfuckers are sour, man. It's okay that your movie flopped. A lot of my favorite movies flopped. It's fine. People hated the thing when it came out because people are stupid. Yeah, but but here's the thing. Um, it 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 just didn't get any marketing. The 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 reception, both critically and by the audiences, were fantastic to Treasure Planet. So why well, would yeah, it have marketi- flopped? Marketing is is one of the things as well like i don't think it got marketing because they wanted it it didn't get marketing because they wanted it to flop i think it didn't get marketing because they didn't care it was kind of like this film was essentially just for disney and iou we'll let you make the movie and we'll put it out yeah but, but you know they're not, not going to put in any extra effort <laughs> not marketing a, such a giant movie is sending it out to die. You're just phrasing it differently. No, I'm not. Like, you guys think there's, like, such a sinister, like, plot behind it, but I've, I, do, I just think they didn't care about it. Yeah, at the end of the day, one of us is um, believing uh, it has the tinfoil hat on and the other one hasn't at all, and the people out there can <laughs> now hurt both sides of this. Man, we spoke for, like, nearly an hour on this movie. And half of it was on this stupid fucking theory that <laughs> <laughs> Disney shot this film in the back of the fucking head. Yeah. Oh. It's a fun side of the story. I like it. <laughs> I will say that is the most interested I've been in this movie the entire time. See? Now I, I achieved something. I, <laughs> I can pat myself on the back now. Anyway, it's okay for, for them guys. I can't remember the names. One of them's Ron Clements, right? Ron Clements and John Musker. Right, that's the yeah. They went on to make like Moana, didn't they? At some point. Yeah, yeah. They, it worked they out for them. Fine. <laughs> you worked out for them. <laughs> no, no. So we want to do ratings. As the pastor, how about you do your rating first? <laughs> yeah, this is an eight out of ten for me. It's very nostalgic. I just love all the animation in it. I love when things successfully get merged and when you take the best out of different worlds both in the design this applies here and in the meta level of the animation itself i have some struggles with the story but other than that all my love to this movie eight out of ten 
Okay, and I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. I think it is okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, so with that 5 out of 10 in mind, let's move on to Into the Spider-Verse. Thoughts? Uh, that, that, that I know that's not true, but that just sounded like you're setting it up as, now let's move on to the next 5 out of 10. <laughs> Uh, in my head, it was more. It was more going for. Well, that was a five out of ten. So let's move on to something that is infinitely better than a five out of ten. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was expecting you to go like, now let's move on to a ten out of ten, but then you didn't. So <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't want. I didn't want to spoil nothing. You know, <laughs> gotta keep them on their toes. Yeah, yeah, gotta keep them after on their toes after we introduced the movie last time as <laughs> your favorite movie of all time. <laughs> Never know. Hmm. No. Suspicious. Could have forgot. Yeah, into the Spider Verse. Uh, let, let's get serious again. This is a super important movie. Let's uh, let's get it straight out of the way. This kind of proved to the world that. 3D can not only look different, but also be successful, and that 2D elements aren't that. That you can make a big budget, hyper stylized movie in the animation world and at the same time make a profit. This absolutely started a new movement in animation, and it was kind of a stepping stone for things that came since then or for at least a possible future where animation can be way more varied again compared to the last decade or whatever of pixelization where each and every animated movie looked the same. Yeah, so obviously we, we know this is a, a very big movement in the animation industry. I think it's I think I've heard someone call it 2.5D, which I think is uh, yeah. is a very fine term for it because yeah, yeah, it's not quite 3D, but it's also like a bit more than 2D. So no, I get it. I get it to a degree. There's there's like a weird stuff with that happening because that term of 2.5D gets thrown around for different things within the animation space. I don't know if you have ever seen Klaus, for example. Yeah. The yeah, because that also gets called 2.5D and it's approaching 2.5D from the other direction where it's actually 2D animated, but then lit with a program to make it appear 3D. So kind of like the polar opposite of what Spider-Verse is doing. <laughs> oh, yeah. So so it's it's kind of a weird term to use, but yeah. yeah I, I mean, but my point was, anyway, I usually hate it when something does become popular and then everyone decides to make a version of it um but that being said if any style was to become popular and repeated i am glad it's this one mm. um because it is so versatile and it's so beautiful and it's so energetic like we saw it in um puss in boosts the last wish mm where that clearly combines elements of, you know, Spider-Verse and also anime. Yeah. Which Into the Spider-Verse does incorporate its own anime influence, but it is much heavier in Puss in Boots. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's kind of like they've taken the template and just changed the ingredients a little bit. 
Yeah, yeah. Which is great. And it seems like they, they're doing it again with the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie that's set to come out later this year, mm-hmm. um, which yeah, I am also really excited for. There's even other examples of, I guess, little less heavy-handed versions of this with uh, the bad guys, yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's versions where it's more on the straight up doing the the stylization with uh, the netflix animation and the galactic for example yes there's, there's quite a few instances where things like like that have been done i'm so glad you mentioned that because i was gonna mention it at some point i just love intergalactic and i think it deserved a bit more love um i didn't but yeah, that's fine get into that's that. okay <laughs> but, but we won't go there yeah but yeah I, i'm glad that if any any style got really popular. I am glad it's this one. Since it is so <laughs> revolutionary as well. You know, it is probably the biggest step in animated films since probably Toy Story, you know, with the invention of 3D animation. Aside from, obviously, Treasure Planet being kind of like a halfway step. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, th- I feel like this is the biggest stride that we've taken in animation since probably that first Toy Story film. Yeah, it's at least the biggest stride towards a return of a possible like 2D animated side as well. Like there's yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I'm 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 very excited for this to I mean, obviously we're seeing the impacts mm-hmm. slowly, but I'm very much ready for like a 2D renaissance. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's not quite happened yet, but I feel like we are on the cusp of it. Yeah, um, for sure. With with other studios uh, taking over the space that used to be inhabited by the Hollywood studios. So you have, like, as I already pointed out, Klaus, which was done by, like, a small Portuguese studio. And you have the Irish Cartoon Saloon, which did, like, five movies already. And they are quite successful with what they are doing. And they are completely just 2D animation. Hyper-stylized 2D animation, I matter. But, yeah, it's... We're definitely slowly creeping up to a world where we can return to 2D animation to a degree. I mean, yeah, we have been getting a few quite recently. Not, you know, on a massive scale or anything. But even some that are having kind of a, a cult following, like Wolf Walkers, for example. Yeah, yeah. Which is an independent movie, but is obviously received very well. And I think... For what it is, it's very successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was nominated for an Oscar, I'm sure, right? Yeah, Cartoon Saloon actually, uh, four of the five animated movies they made were nominated for the Oscar, and they lost so, every yeah. time. <laughs> I mean, that's I think one but... was to Spider Verse actually, and the other was to Pixar stuff. I mean, whatever lost to Spider Verse is completely fair. Yeah, I feel like that <laughs> might have been the breadwinner. Yeah, I think you're right. Because I think that came out 2017. Mm-hmm. Might be right. Yeah, which is actually quite sad because I think that is my favorite film of theirs. Oh, really? Yeah, I love I yeah. love Wolfwalkers. I think Red Winner is one of the slightly weaker ones, but yeah, it's it's still a good movie. The Cartoon Saloon are yeah. fantastic. But let's return to Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I'm definitely ready for a 2D renaissance and... um. I, I feel like this film has, has helped so much in pushing animation. Not even 
forward in just like a technical aspect or anything, but even just pushing it to the forefront of cinema. Yeah. You know, because animation, again, is that old, you know, um, argument that people think, you know, it's for children. And then there's the whole animation is cinema, it's not for blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And there's, as I already pointed out, this idea put forward to, um, yeah, these kids are just like so used to this, how to the style of how things look and that they might be overwhelmed if you like confront them with anything else, <laughs> which is just ridiculous, let's face it. Yeah, of course. And I think it's crazy because the sequels come out to it because Into the Spider-Verse wasn't actually that successful. Like it was successful and it, I think it gained popularity more over the years rather than when it initially came out. But it's gone all the way to the point where, like, its sequel is, like, the fourth highest grossing film of the year so far. And also, just to put it out there, as we are saying, like, it's pushing animation to the forefront of people, you know, not just associating it with kids' movies, but to harness, um, to liken it to a kids' movie, I mean, the Mario Bros. movie is number one. <laughs> You know, highest grossing movie of this year. And I know you can't attribute all that to Spider-Verse and things like that for putting animation at the top. But I do think it has something to say where two of the films in the top five are animated, which rarely ever happens. Yeah, just check the numbers, actually. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, Into the Spider-Verse made close to 400 million at the box office, which is a big like they they definitely yeah. made a profit um but across the spider-verse is already sitting almost at half a billion they are like really close to that yeah so like i remember into the spider-verse being pretty big mm -hmm. but i i distinctly remember it gaining a following more so afterwards yeah which is honestly really nice for the for a legacy of a movie oh yeah because sure. there's some movies that you know come out and they're huge when they come out and then they kind of just fizzle out and disappear mm. and they don't get much past that and there's those movies where they initially absolutely flop and it's only with the retro perspective that they gain attention which is also kind of sucks at least for the moment this movie had kind of both, you know? It it wasn't that big, yeah. but it also gained a cult following. And I think that's kind of one of the things that definitely makes it special is that it it was that good that it kind of couldn't flop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it was, it was so good that it was going to at least make money, which is very inspiring. But yeah, like, outside the influence, I fucking love this movie. Mm-hmm. As no surprise to anybody that has seen my top 100 on Letterboxd or who has ever seen my YouTube channel or who has ever spoken to me for more than 10 <laughs> minutes, they all know I love this movie. It's in my top five, most probably, probably top three. I think my top three is like this, The Thing, and Evil Dead 2. I just, I adore it from the moment I saw it. I mean, I have a Mars Morales tattoo. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was my third ever tattoo, and I got it when I was 18, which I think was the year Spider-Verse came out. 
Spider-Man was a huge deal to me growing up. Mm. Obviously, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films was probably the films that ever got me into film in general, which I, you know, weirdly enough, got me into horror films later down the line because of Sam Raimi. Yeah. But I just loved Spider-Man and I was a huge comic nerd growing up. Um, and I still am, embarrassingly. I never was really a comic nerd at all. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't, I just didn't own any. I, I never got to it. Um, I grew up, yeah. up on the countryside, so it wasn't all, it wasn't even in a way where I could run past a shop or anything and see like something like that. So that just wasn't in my general life. I did, however, love Spider-Man a lot. And I think the big reasoning behind just growing up and loving Spider-Man works out is because, you know, he's he's the kid's superhero. He also yeah. has struggles. He's, like, growing up and his body changes and stuff like that. You know, it's it's all obviously abstracted, but Spider-Man as a whole is kind of this story about puberty and that's just super relatable to any teen <laughs> what i think is actually kind of funny was as i am a comic fucking nerd i will be the first to tell you then which you may not know was the mars morales comics before this film came out sucked <laughs> they are not good <laughs> they're just kind of shitty you know how like weird people now are just like can only associate him as the black spider-man but they don't associate him as spider-man mm -hmm. that's how the comics themselves felt at first okay like they were just focusing so much on the fact that like hey we're trying something new we have a black spider-man and it always just felt weird and ingenuine like they wasn't giving him any character mm -hmm. But this film changed all of it. Because since then, his fucking comics have become crazy good. Because they've all pretty much taken influence from this film. <laughs> I remember watching this film, because I didn't actually see this in cinemas. Because in my head, I was like, man, I don't fuck with Miles Morales. <laughs> you know? And then, you know, it came out later on, and I was like, Do you know what? I've got nothing else to watch. I'll just throw it on. And it blew my fucking mind and i watched it five times that week <laughs> i watched it every day it's just so brilliant and then as soon as i saw my girlfriend because we were still at school at the time um as soon as i saw my girlfriend i was like we need to watch we, we need to watch it to the spider-verse you're gonna love it i promise you're gonna love it so much and then we ended up watching it and i think between this and 2014's chef it's like our <laughs> most watched film as a couple. I love the. <laughs> That's the John Favreau movie, right? Yep. That's I love such that movie. a random pick. <laughs> I fucking love Chef so much. We're going to have to talk about it one day. <laughs> we, we genuinely do. I've seen that film an ungodly amount of times. Oh my God. That, that just hit me out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I fucking love Chef. But yeah, I've seen I've seen this film a ridiculous amount of times. I see it possibly maybe once a month. Mm -hmm. And that's since it came out. <laughs> so that's years worth of once a month. I've seen this movie a fucking lot. 
and it's just brilliant. And I like, I like it slightly more than the sequel, which we will get to. Yes, same um, over here. And I guess I'll get into why when we talk about the sequel, but I do like how it leaks into the sequel. Now that the sequel's out, I view this film differently. You know, like the whole bagel thing. <laughs> I always loved the bagel gag. I, uh, you know, I actually have a note on that from the commentary track. Throughout the making of this movie, the, produ- the two producers and the three directors basically encouraged anyone all of the time around the clock come up with crazy ideas. Just throw them at the wall and if we like anything we'll take it and someone was like annoyed at them asking for new ideas so he just made the joke what if the text bagel pops up when he gets hit and people were so in love with it in the studio and it's also one of my favorite gags in the movie yeah it was one of my favorite as soon as i like as soon as i noticed it because i didn't notice it said bagel until like my third watch oh i I noticed Um, it right away i loved it so fucking much (laughs) i just i love i love that one woman that just goes he stole a bagel yeah (laughs) it's just such like a funny light little joke and yeah I love that so much. And now, you know, given the context that that's a villain origin story now, mm-hmm. that one little moment caused an entire origin story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's beautiful. I'll never watch that film the same again. Yeah. And yeah, I just, it's so fantastic. And you did bring up the producers, which is Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Yes. Um, who are so important to animation. To big studio animation right now, yeah, for sure. They are, like, the <laughs> the big guys right now. I mean, yeah. Oh, right, because here's another one that we forgot to mention, because they also produced Mitchells versus the Machines. Yes. Which is very much on the same wavelength mm-hmm. as Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, which also has the fun thing of, even though it was in production way before Spider-Verse came out, it already was the first instance of direct influence since through the producers in the studio of Mitchells vs. the Machines, they had early access to some of the things they were doing on yeah. Into the Spider-Verse. And once they realized, oh shit, they are going so hard over there, they realized, okay, we can go harder now as well. They were holding back initially during the yeah. making of the Mitchells versus the Machines, because they believe, yeah, people aren't ready for this. This needs to be like a stepping stone and then we can go further. And then they saw, oh, wait, Into the Spider-Verse over there is already going way further. We can easily go harder. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I think Mitchells versus the Machines should have gone even harder, yes. if I'm being honest. Yeah, but same. That's a conversation for a different day. But yeah, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, they also did um, the Lego movie and the Lego Batman movie, which themselves are very important films in animation also. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I feel like just any time these guys touch animation, you know it's going to be something special. I mean, even Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which I think is their first animated film that they um, partnered on. Mm-hmm. Good movie. Way back in like 2009 or 10 or something. Yeah, it's a really good movie. Mm-hmm. I've always loved it. So yeah, I just feel like they have a ve- um, a special eye and brain for these films. So though they're not the 
directors as such they definitely do have their touch oh yeah yeah yeah. and you can feel their presence i think they wrote the first draft of the story as well yeah so they, they are definitely they involved stories, yeah. it's not like they are only providing money and then fucking off <laughs> yeah 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 no like that's what i mean like you can definitely feel their presence in all of the films that they've produced for sure for sure you know they are very present in all of it I feel like, by the way, because we're not really talking about the movie that much. Yeah. But also, I feel like that's because it's been talked about a lot. Yes. You know, there's not a lot that we can say actually about in the movie Mm -hmm. that's, you know, has not already been said a thousand times. Like, yeah, the fucking, the music's great. The animation's great. (laughs) (laughs) What do you want from it? The, The what's up danger, you know, the whole leap of faith scene. Um, where he first truly becomes Spider-Man and he dons the suit and yeah, it gave me chills. Still mm-hmm. does. Yeah, probably I, the best scene in the film. It's I great. mean, there's there's a few minor things from like technical animation details we can point out. There's the most obvious one that has already kind of been talked to death: the animating on twos versus animating on ones yeah. with Miles Morales yeah, yeah, and yeah. Peter Parker. Where for people who don't know. When during the training sequence where they swing together through the woods, uh, Miles Morales is animated on two, so his character only moves every other frame, which is a classical animation technique, which is kind of ch- clanky, but was used for, you know, saving money purposes back then, back in the days. And here it's a play on Peter Parker being smooth and knowing what he's doing whilst Miles is still figuring it out. But there's also like other stuff that I thought is really interesting. In the commentary, someone pointed out that the moment, the like the moment where he's falling down and the camera is falling down with him, but also on top, uh, like the image is flipped, basically. I like the idea that it's not only a beautiful shot but it's him at the same time falling but also rising up and that's kind of portrayed in that imagery like he he is really falling into his role as spider-verse he's accepting his place in this world but also he is rising up as a new person and within the imagery he is falling but since the camera is flipped on its head from our perspective he's rising to the skies which just a beautiful little thing it's glorious Mm -hmm. we've established i've seen this a lot and i'm still in awe every single time i watch it Mm -hmm. on some personal notes i think this is my favorite movie soundtrack of all time i still listen to the soundtrack very often i actually have the um score for this film um, on vinyl. Nice. Um, and it's a very beautiful vinyl. I'll have to actually send you a photo of it. It's very gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And it's just something that's really special to me. It's a, it's very much a comfort movie. Mm-hmm. Miles Morales went from my least favorite version of Spider-Man to top two. <laughs> this, this specifically, um, this specific Miles Morales is my you know, my go-to Spider-Man other than Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, which is saying a lot because yeah, yeah. obviously that Spider-Man is my childhood. So to put him even next next to that is crazy. Mm. 
I would even put this film adaptation version of Spider-Man over most of the comic runs. It's it's just something very deeply personal to me, and I I very much do love it a lot. Since you brought up music in the original score of this movie, so not the needle drops yeah, yeah, per yeah. se, so there's a few original score elements, they actually... Even there, they played around a lot and were like encouraged to be creative with involving comics in it. So they actually used flipping the, the sound of flipping through comic books for percussion, which I thought was <laughs> just a mm. super weird but interesting yeah. detail. <laughs> I guess I can keep going with, with like a few yeah, behind the go. scenes stuff. Again, I'm big into design philosophy. And the design philosophy of Kingpin's character is just amazing. Uh, oh my god. He, you know, his story arc and his danger is associated with the black hole. So his whole character is supposed to represent the black hole. Like the character model of this thing <laughs> isn't even just a character model. It's a floating head and two floating hands attached to a black blob that's the yeah, character void. model yeah and depending on the scene they vary how big that black blob is it isn't consistent at all yeah, it is no. just this <laughs> mass the, the the sequences where like he takes up the entire shot yeah <laughs> are some of my favorites yeah they're like he's just such an imposing figure this is kingpin like, Kingpin in the live-action Daredevil show is great. He's cool. Very realistic. I don't want that. <laughs> I don't care about realistic depictions of comic book stuff. I think it's so tired and it's so boring. Give me Kingpin that is the size of the fucking room. Mm -hmm. You know, where, like, everyone in that room is sitting under his breast. Yeah. It's it's really powerful imagery and and just the the level of representing a, a black hole for this specific story is fantastic. I don't know about the origins of like the comic if he's always been associated with the whole multiverse black hole mm, thing. No, okay, no. Then it it makes sense in this story at least the, the character. Yeah, design. no, they re they really took a great liberty with it. Mm -hmm. Also, I love that they made Doc Ark. One, a woman. Yeah. So it kind of comes out of nowhere, like you don't really expect it. Mm -hmm. Which is funny because that plays on, you know, your expectations because everything associated with her, you know, in the design of even the room, her glasses and all this, as we know, are all octagons. Yeah, I was about to point out. Which is funny because had she been male, I guarantee most people would have immediately picked up on it. Yeah. You know? Like, it would have felt really heavy-handed. But the fact that they made her a woman just kind of threw all of that out the window. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it it expected you to just not read into it. Yeah. Which I assume most people didn't. Mm -hmm. And nobody so yeah, realized that like, her glasses and the logo of yeah. the company and the lights and even her freaking desk is half an octagonal <laughs> yeah it's insane. so i, it's I just think it's um it's it's really it's really good also i love i love the live joke the live joke is amazing 
Because obviously she's like, um, Peter B's like, um, I assume your friends call you Doc Ock. And then she goes, well, no, my friends call me Liv. <laughs> and then later on in the film, when they're all breaking into Aunt May's house, she breaks through the door and then they just cut to Aunt May and she goes, oh, great. It's Liv. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One, very funny, because I didn't expect that joke to come back. But also, I love the implication that Aunt May is friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with Doc Ock in real life. <laughs> like, that's so funny. Yeah. I also love, uh, since we're on character designs with Doc Ock, I love that they uh, spiced it up with the soft body robotics, which is a real thing. Like, there is yeah. soft body robotics development, and it kind of looks like the things that they animated, but it's such a fresh take on Doc Ock. It would have felt odd if they made just the mechanical arms of Spider-Man to Sam Raimi's Well, Doc yeah, because this is the thing as well. This is how they also throw you off, because um, they actually, you know, in Gwen's backstory that she's given about how she got sucked into the portal, you see her universe's Doc Ock arms, because the arms go to grab her as she dives through the portal, and then the mechanical ones, pretty much exactly like the Raimi ones. Mm. So it's already in your head as well that that's what you are to expect. Yeah. Which I think is is very clever that they took what we commonly associate with Doc Ock and just put that into a different universe. For sure. To really set apart the whole multiverse thing. Because as, as much multiverse movies as we have now, I still think this film and, you know, by extension, the second, do it the best. Mm-hmm. You know, I I love that it's not it's not trying too hard with the whole multiverse thing. They're not trying to overly explain anything. They're just throwing it at you. You know, there's a collider, it goes off, the multiverse is here. I kind of would at at least it, it would be hard for me to really decide between the two of, of like into the spider-verse. But I would prefer everything everywhere over across the Spider-Verse. That's like a multiverse thing. But there it's also... The multiverse and everything everywhere is almost more a metaphor for, uh, you know, growing up with the internet and being bombarded with information all of the time. So it's it's really more a metaphor there. But yeah, I, I guess that would... I get mind. what you mean. I feel like the only reason I say it is they utilize it more explicitly here. You know, it's more of an actual, like, function Mm -hmm. in the film. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole film is built around the multiverse. Yeah, yeah. And the whole, you know, if the multiverse doesn't exist, then the film has no concept, whereas I feel like everything, everywhere, all at once, if it didn't have a multiversal aspect, they could still try and make that story work. Because, again, it's, it's more so a metaphor than just a story device. I think it's just a perfectly fitting metaphor. That's just the thing. I, I think it would be super hard to replace. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course it would be hard. But yeah. I feel like, you know, at what's, at, what's at the core of that film could Isn't, work yeah, yeah. elsewhere. Know, yeah. Whereas this film just doesn't work at all without it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But also on the topic of the whole multiverse thing. All the alternate spider people that we get are fucking brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, to get some obvious ones, like Penny Parker, I wish was used a bit more. 
because I feel like the whole anime aspect could have, you know, added something. Been yeah, a, mm. a, a more more of a flavor in this film, but you know, that it's severe nitpicking at that point. <laughs> Spider Ham, just funny, just is. He's a pig. His name's Peter Porker. It's yeah. great. <laughs> um, <laughs> no notes. Perfect. Also, the inspired decision to cast John Mulaney as Spider Ham, mm. who ju- he has just enough weasel in his voice. Yeah, perfect. Um, and, and then the obviously, obvious, yeah, the one Nick Cage, and only <laughs> Nick Cage, <laughs> Nicholas Cage as Spider Man, uh, as um, Spider Man Noir. Noir. Yeah, God, amazing. Incredible. Every line quotable. <laughs> Every single line. It's amazing. It, it's like, it feels like every line that he recorded was recorded separately as like a piece. <laughs> you know? Like, he, they were just trying to find like a tagline for him. So they just made him record like a hundred taglines. And that's all his dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking incredible. I heard the story that when he was first doing this role, they weren't quite happy with Nick Cage, with the way what? that he was doing it. Yeah, they he wasn't delivering it quite with the energy they wanted. So they they were trying to like ask him to do it more like Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> but like it's that's such a super awkward thing to ask actual Nicolas Cage. Yeah. <laughs> um so while they were trying to explain it he he like just clicked into him and he was like oh you want the full cage and then he went in he did it again and he just fucking absolutely smashed it like and i love that he's so self-aware that he knows yeah yeah you know he's like he has oh, played this is what Nicolas you want? cage yeah, a few it. times at this point <laughs> yeah he's like I, I get what you want man don't worry about it i got it and then he went in oh, fucking fantastic. smashed it um, yeah, so Nicolas Cage is great. I love the whole gag about just the wind. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, is he in black and white? Where's the wind coming from? We're in a basement. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just funny. Every line. I love the whole Rubik's Cube gag where he's just guessing all the colours on the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> Obviously, Spider-Gwen. Mm-hmm. Really great. I love her design. Her design yeah. is very cool. But, obviously... Peter B. Parker. Wow. <laughs> I mean, for one, they cast um, Jake Johnson from fucking New Girl, which, you know, New Girl is one of my favorite sitcoms. I think we've had the conversation before. So obviously I love that decision. But um, one, he's perfect. Like in my head, he is a perfect voice for Spider-Man. And also I love that even though he's presented as depressed, fat, you know, kind of just mentally out of it. He's still the best one there. Which, you know, is to imply that imagine this guy if this didn't go well. You know, I mean, if this didn't go bad rather. It's it's kind of the perfect follow-up to what I mentioned earlier with Spider-Man just being super relatable to a teen. As yeah. in he has struggles, he is not this perfect guy, he has his own problems. And Peter B. Parker being a generation older at this point, having like a little belly and done 
in the sequel, as we will get to Baby and stuff. It, it's just the perfect continuation of this imperfect, flawed character just having superpowers, but still being the imperfect, flawed character, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's funny as well, because what I love so much is I don't think people really catch on too much to this, where, you, you know, the first Peter Parker, like Peter Parker, mm-hmm. he's like a bad adaptation of Peter Parker. He's the most straightforward version. This is the thing, right? So, mm-hmm. like, everyone... His whole role is that he's perfect. Yeah. So, as in, you know, in a vacuum, he's a great character. But as a Spider-Man adaptation, it's about as bad as you can get. Because pretty much the whole point is that it sucks to be Peter Parker. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like one of his main things. You know, Spider-Ham even touches on that slightly, which is really fucking crazy for for it to come from him. But he's like, the toughest part about the job is that you don't always get to save everybody, mm-hmm. which is so crazy coming from him. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, it's supposed to be difficult being Spider-Man. It's not supposed to be easy, and that's kind of his whole point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I feel like it, it's quite hilarious that he's the perfect Peter Parker whilst technically being the worst version that he could be. But Peter B. Parker is just... He has my heart. <laughs> he does. I love that adaptation of Peter Parker. I think he's special. As you said, it kind of is the relatability, right? Yeah. And Spider-Man 2 really digs on that. Like, I feel like Spider-Man 2 is the greatest example of how to make a Peter Parker movie. Mm-hmm. Not just a Spider-Man movie, but a Peter Parker movie. Because that guy gets shit on in that film. Yeah. It's brutal to him. And I feel like that's that's one of the reasons why Spider-Man 2 is kind of revered as, you know, the best Spider-Man film ever, is how much it really puts across the, the human nature of Peter Parker and the sacrifices it takes. And I feel like this film translates that pretty much just as well. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it gets brought down onto Miles himself who has to learn that also. I just wanted to go back into the how I view this film differently now than when I, you know, did before with the whole canon event thing. Yeah. Now knowing that, you know, Peter Parker died because Miles was there, or at least that's what we're told, you know, we don't mm-hmm. actually know that for sure, but um, if we're to take Miguel telling the truth, then... Peter Parker dying because Miles enters this universe as a Spider-Man completely changes the way I see this film, which is crazy as well, because it makes sense in a way, you know, because obviously Miles is talking to him after the whole thing happens after the explosion. And he says, you know, are you going to get up? And he says, you know, yeah, I always get up because I'm sure that he does. And the only reason that he doesn't now is because he's not destined to. Mm-hmm. Which I think is like retrospectively really powerful to say that he only failed because he had to. But yeah, um, Into the Spider Verse is good. <laughs> <laughs> Understatement of the year, but yeah, um, <laughs> it's pretty good, that film. I have two more moments that I want to specifically point out. Yep, go. Uh, the Stan Lee cameo. 
there's a fun trivia surrounding that. Is the best Stanley cameo of all time. <laughs> it is a head. fantastic Stanley cameo, yes. First trivia to that is Stanley was the only actor that didn't drive to the studio, but the producers and the, and the tech, like the team, went with their equipment to Stan Lee <laughs> to record that part. <laughs> that's, yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Yeah, that's just a Stan Lee move. And it is not the only time Stan Lee appears in the movie. I assume you know that. Yes. Yes, he is everywhere. And that's for the simple reason that every single animator wanted to make like his own animated little Stan Lee. So they put them as extras everywhere in the background on each bus that drives by. On each train, you can see Stan Lee's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, which is beautiful as well, because I'm pretty sure this is the last film that he cameoed in, right? Uh, no, it, I think it was the first film that released after his death. So they already recorded a few other Stanley cameos right, for Project, yeah. but, but this yeah, was the I've, first that's one. That's very fitting. Yeah, yeah. This was the first one that released with a Stanley cameo after he was already gone. Yeah, and I feel like also his main cameo in the store is the perfect kind of send off for for Stanley mm -hmm. because one, you know, it's kind of a tongue in cheek remark where it's like, you know, it always fits eventually, which is. You know, it, it's got its double meaning. One is a super inspiring message and is kind of the message of Spider-Man, um, is that anyone can wear the mask. In. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. And I feel like, one, that's a really great way to honor Stanley's legacy in reference to Spider-Man. But also, I love that it, it kind of comes off as he's a little bit of a scumbag, <laughs> you know, like with the whole no returns and the gold tooth and stuff. Like, he's a bit of a bit of a shitty businessman which is kind of the sense of humor that i know stan lee would have loved yeah you know i assume he would have really loved the uh the double message of that cameo and yeah just the fact that he's absolutely everywhere in this film is really beautiful um and a great standoff it's also just fitting to have that cameo in a movie that really loves the comic side of it you know this yeah. movie feels like watching a comic become also, alive in front of your eyes. A movie that loves Spider-Man. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, there's tons of movies about Spider-Man, but this film truly feels like it loves the character. Mm -hmm. I mean, it plays with all of the tropes of the character, plays with the history of the character, not just in comics, but in films as well. You know, with um, Peter Parker's intro, they do the whole... Um, Spider-Man 3 thing, yeah. <laughs> Where he does, like, the fucking stupid awkward dance. Yeah. Um, they reference that in one of the backstories and stuff. And the bringing in stuff scene. like Spider-Ham. Yeah, the after credit. It's just, I feel like it's a... I hate saying this, but it is a love letter to the character. Oh, for sure. And I know that gets used a lot now. Like, oh, yeah, this is a love letter to blah, blah, blah. But this <laughs> truly is a love letter to Spider-Man. And... I think it embraces all of Spider-Man, not just the greatness of it, but also the tropeness of it and some of the poor moments from the comics and movies. And mm -hmm. It even pokes fun at the whole being on a cereal box and having their own Christmas album, which yeah. are like real things, you know, <laughs> just digging out the commercialism of it as well. So yeah, I think this film really cares and I think that is beautiful to 
have Stanley's kind of legacy encompassed in this one. Also, just a final thing I want to point out, probably my favorite scene, which is a super small understated moment, but I love just the complexity of what goes on emotionally throughout that moment. It's right after he had, or right when he has his little tantrum in the room, after having the confrontation with his uncle, aka the yeah. brawler. There's this moment where he throws out his sketchbook through the window, which, you know, he has all the graffiti in, or like the designing for the graffiti in, which is the hobby that he developed or at least like engaged in together with his uncle. That's his association with his uncle. So when he throws out the sketchbook through the window, it's clearly him throwing out the memory of his uncle, pushing away the emotion, and it just flies back at him together with spider people, uh, which is not only a super fun way to, you know, break up this heavy moment, fantastic pacing, by the way, they do that throughout the movie where heavy moments and uh, lighthearted fun moments are like intercut and it works flawlessly. But it also really shows him and or us, I guess, he can't get just rid of his pain. It will come back to him. And he needs to work through it, but friends can help you with that. Two seconds, one shot, no over-designing, very simple idea, but executed with style and it does everything it needs to. That's like a perfect two seconds of cinema. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, realistically, we could make a single episode about this film. And oh, sure. bring up every tiny little thing yeah. that's perfect about it. Because <laughs> it is. Which just brings me to say that I don't think I have anything else to say about it. Because if I do have anything else to say about it, I will be talking about it for the next five hours. <laughs> Fair enough. I have something left, but I will push that to the Cross the Spider-Verse discussion. Because yeah. it kind of... Relate. is an explanation of some problems I have with that that work out perfectly here. Okay, that's absolutely fine. So do you want to do ratings? Let's do ratings. This is a 9 out of 10 for me. Well, I had this film at a 9 out of 10 for a very long time. And at a certain point, I just kind of said to myself, why are you doing that? <laughs> you know in your heart, it's a 10. So, yeah. Fair enough. It's a 10, which might be... Is this my first 10 on the podcast? No, I don't think so. I think we had, like, a moment where... Yeah, actually, I think I think I remember that, actually. Yeah, it was a whole big thing, wasn't it? But I what, what I, was it? <laughs> I, I cannot remember. But yeah, for people who don't know, I don't give out 10s very yeah Easily. this is a rare occurrence <laughs> it's, it is it is a very rare occurrence um so it's actually kind of bothering me that i don't know what film that was for i thought you had one but i couldn't tell you what it would have been so maybe not okay so i guess that brings us to across the spider-verse across the spider-verse it is okay so you you have a thing yeah i'm gonna go into the thing a little later on because first I want to say I really still love this a lot and it's gonna maybe come off as if I didn't as much. Um, the thing with this movie is as a natural progression 
of the story, of the stylization, of a possibly bigger budget and more trust in the project following up this first one, and as the stepping stone for a trilogy, this movie just exists in this weird space where some things don't flawlessly work out, but one of the things I absolutely adore about these, this movie and the stylization of particularly this movie are the first 20 minutes or whatever it is with that just play out in Gwen's universe. Yes. My fucking god, is that gorgeous. The watercolored backgrounds and how they just at some points only represent emotion and don't even make out any surroundings at all are just flawless. And I love that. And I love every time the movie slows down for a second and you can really engage with this incredible, incredible world they created. Therein lies, however, the problem, in my opinion, where... I pointed out that the pacing and the tonality of the first one is just almost flawless to me uh, with how they spice it up. This one, since they kind of both, I feel like, felt the need to ramp up the story and the pacing there and also ramp up the stylization, I felt like it pushed the envelope maybe just a little too far. For me, at least, like very personal opinion, but for me, this felt just a, t a tiny bit too much. The story of the first one offers obviously a lot of opportunities to calm down, you know, its development. He needs to find his place as a spider person first. And this story, he already is. So the, the pacing thing makes sense from a technical side of it but i mostly love this one and already also the first one whenever it slows down like it's those are the most beautiful moments to me other than the opening when they just when when gwen and him just sit there upside down again which is definitely an homage to the first one that's the most beautiful scene in the whole film to me and it doesn't need the over 9,000, everything is happening all the time and it's, it's left and right and you can't keep up. And that's kind of how I felt about this movie. It's fantastic. It's, it's incredible that it is made. It is incredible that they are having the opportunity to go that far out there. And I would way more prefer 10 more movies like this releasing that are too much for me than just having movies that don't try anything at all. So I love that it exists. I kind of love that it more exists for maybe other people than myself. <laughs> I hope that the, the story with the next one being the final of the trilogy kind of finds more somber moments and moments to really let the characters take over and not the bombastic action i do understand that to be honest like, i do i do get it 
and I can see why you feel that way. I don't feel the same way, but I do understand like where that's coming from. I do think the next film is going to slow down. Yeah, I feel so too. Because I yeah, I feel like this is the um rather the storm before the calm rather than the calm before the storm. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I I that's what I, tr- I tried to point out. Like with it just being the second one in a trilogy, it's really awkward of a story moment. Like the whole thing got to feel like one one big story arc over the trilogy for it to be a good trilogy that's that's what makes good trilogies good that the themes kind of stretch over the three movies so this had to have been the middle middle child and that's kind of awkward you know it's yeah yeah i get it but yeah sequels are always in a tough spot like especially if that sequel is a part of a planned trilogy you know because it's different if in the case of again to go back to say the Raimi trilogy Raimi doesn't know at the time anyway doesn't know whether he's going to get a next film Mm -hmm. you know so he's just making a film yeah so you know Spider-Man 2 exists very well in a vacuum Mm -hmm. whereas this film doesn't because they know where it's going yeah you know it it has to lead to something so i know like i heard a lot of people saying like they didn't like it because it didn't have like a complete arc which i disagree with slightly but i do agree with the sentiment because the arc that's completed in this film is for gwen mm-hmm. not miles yeah but the problem is this is miles story you know yeah. This isn't really Gwen's story. So I do love that they focused on Gwen more in this. Mm-hmm. But I feel like giving Gwen an arc in spite of Miles, saving Miles' overall arc for the next film, I feel like was a slightly poor decision. I feel like they could have done more to give them both something. I mean, it definitely felt like it was heading there. Mm-hmm. You know, the, there was that whole moment where Miles kind of realizes that he's much more powerful and worthwhile than he thought he was. You know, this, because I touched on this in the video that I did on Across the Spider Verse, but he, the whole time before he meets back up with everyone, he's just yearning for them. You know, that's all that he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like a lot of that is built in self doubt. Um, that he kind of needs a team. And then his rejection to not be able to join the team, or more so, oh, Gwen has been part of the team for a while now, uh-huh. It kind of almost confirms his doubts in her- himself. Yeah. And then, you know, he manages to evade every Spider-Man available with, quite honestly, relative ease. There's only one moment where he's kind of in danger, and that's when Miguel has him on that um, that train or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's the only time in that entire kind of breakout that he struggles heavily, which even then he makes it out of, which is crazy. It's you know, um, and therein is the twist that he actually has a plan, which you almost don't. At that point, we don't even believe yeah. that much in him that we. Yeah, we don't think that he could even have a plan. 
I do just actually before I continue on my point, I want to just quickly point out in that sequence, I love that Peter B. Parker is the first one to be able to catch him because he <laughs> does know him. You know, it just mm-hmm. understand like it conveys that Peter B. Parker knows Miles much better than everyone else. You know, he is actually very much connected to him. Anyway, yeah, he gets away. His plan works. And then he, you know, it kind of clicks to him that he's much better at this thing than he thought he was. And he doesn't need a team. So it was definitely heading towards him having a really good, like, realization. But then they had to hold back because he needs to have that realization by the end of the next movie. Yeah, the next movie. (laughs) Um, Which is annoying when you can feel the movie holding itself back. You know, they, they, they give him that and then they make him get captured by the Prowler in the last, like, two minutes. Mm. And it's like, the Miles Morales that I just saw would Wouldn't not be in caught. this situation. Yeah. You know, it, as soon as he's tied up, he's getting out. I thought, mm. I thought they was going to do um, the gag from the first film. You know, when he ties up Peter B. Parker to the same punching bag. And he's talking, and then he goes, first lesson, kid, never watch the mouth, watch the hands, and then frees himself. I mm-hmm. thought he was going to do that, and it was going to become like his, you know, student becomes the master uh, moment. Moment, yeah. But they don't do it, and I feel like that was a massively missed opportunity to do something They might there. open up the third one like that. Yeah. I, I hope they do, like, because obviously he's still attached to the bag, so I do hope that they do that but i feel like it would have been a better moment to have done it at the end of this movie rather than at mm-hmm. the beginning of the next one yeah, yeah. yeah just thematically i think it would have worked much better also the spider-man Nawatis got me hard uh <laughs> <laughs> i yeah i was super happy to know that he will return <laughs> yeah i was i was very very excited because i was really upset when i found out he wasn't going to be in this one um but but spider punk is a fantastic replacement oh, oh gonna absolutely few things about spider punk one mm-hmm. daniel kaluuya yes one of the best working actors today mm-hmm. he kills this role he because you know a lot of the time when you hire celebrities to voice you know animated characters they just kind of show up and you know do them you know kind of like the seth rogan uh syndrome yeah but but here's the thing daniel kaluuya just became a celebrity for being a fantastic character yeah (laughs) so it's like it's good that he didn't just show up and just do a british accent like he yeah really puts in a good performance as a voice actor, Mm. which is just adding more to his belt of what he's capable of. Super random tangent. I love that Daniel Kaluuya became such a big thing. I I kind of grew up with him. So when I was, I don't know, 13 or something, Mm -hmm. I watched the British, so you probably know this, but I, I have no clue how we found it over here because it's not a big cultural thing here. But I watched uh, Skins, yep. the, the British teen series. Yep. And yet that's where Daniel Kaluuya started, you know? Uh, he, he was the, the DJ guy in the first <laughs> first season of the of Skins. So, Do you yeah. know, actually, I want to go on a little tangent because 
Okay, this is like so niche. Even in the UK, this is going to be niche. Um, <laughs> the first time I ever saw Daniel Kaluuya, and I know this man's face like off by heart. And even when I see him now, this is what I relate him to because it was such a part of my like growing up. In the UK, right, there's a genre called grime. One of the biggest grime artists in the UK is JME. JME is sick. Anyone, yeah, that has seen the video for Blam, which came out in like 2009 or some shit, just like a super like bootleg tune with a shitty video. Daniel Kaluuya is the star of that video. And That's pretty much fantastic. all, I'll send it to you after we finish recording. All he does is walk around punching people. That's like the whole video. <laughs> it's just Daniel Kaluuya attacking people. It's fucking brilliant. So yeah, even now, like I still think of him as like the Blam guy. So yeah, just to see him like come from that part of my childhood. So now entering this kind of part of my childhood in a Spider-Man <laughs> movie. Is fucking beautiful, and I love that man, and I cannot wait to see what he does next. Talking about, um, real quick, uh, talking about uh, character appearances in this, are <clears throat> you aware that one of the two live-action people in this movie, the dude sitting in the prison, that's actually the actor they based the original Miles Morales on? Donald Glover was the guy they were thinking of when they came up with Miles Morales. So how perfect to put well, Donald this is Glover the thing. So in Donald, the cage. <laughs> again, this is going to be a whole rant on Donald Glover now. Donald Glover, genuinely, probably the most talented man in films today. <laughs> He's outrageously talented. Um, I don't know if you've seen Atlanta um i have not but no. no it's a show that he writes and directs and it's fucking fantastic it's really good obviously he was on community back in the day yeah, yeah. um very great rapper very good producer um very good vocalist like as a singer excellent mm -hmm. good director good script writer he's a good actor he's he's ridiculously talented i don't think there's mm -hmm. anything the man can't do i think if he picks up a flute today he will be killing it by tomorrow. He is so <laughs> good. And yeah, I've always loved like his... Uh, oh, he's also a really good stand-up comedian as well. To <laughs> just add to that. Um, but I've always loved his connection to Miles Morales. Obviously, it being based on him in the early days and stuff. But also, he has a whole stand-up routine about this in his uh, stand-up special Weirdo where he talks about an, an online campaign to get him to play the live action um, Miles Morales. <laughs> and it's a, re it's a really funny routine because the whole routine is based upon like half the internet was like, we're only going to watch the next Spider-Man if Donald Glover's going to be Spider-Man. And the other half of the internet was like, they want to make Spider-Man black, kill him. <laughs> and it's, it's a really, it's a really good uh, stand-up routine. I, I really like it. Um, but yeah, he's always been very much attached to it. And he's in Spider-Man Homecoming, if you don't remember that. He actually plays the Prowler. Oh. Yeah. He play he's um Spider-Man in interrogates him at one point and he just says like he doesn't want those kind of weapons in his neighborhood because he has a nephew that lives there. The nephew is implied to be Miles Morales. Yeah. Um so yeah, like he's always been very much attached to the character. So to see him in this film, again, 
super special. And I don't know how they was able to keep that under wraps. Yeah, it's interesting that with such a big budget production, you can hide something like that for yeah, so long. I mean, they couldn't even do that for Andrew Garfield on No Way Home. You know, mm. <laughs> they, couldn't, they couldn't even do that for two seconds on that film. Yeah, but also the Dan- Donald Glover thing was probably shot within two hours. <laughs> the Andrew Garfield performance in No Way Home definitely wasn't. Yeah, it's fair. It's beautiful seeing him there. And <laughs> I, I do think he deserves more flowers. I also think he just recently produced a new show. I don't, I don't know if he acts in it, but I know he's created a new show called Swarm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is getting fantastic reviews mm-hmm. yeah so i might go and watch that at some point um it was really nice i will say though the live action aspects that are added into this film do look really weird i appreciate them and i think they're sick but they look odd mm-hmm. yeah i think it just works because you know just with the general idea of it being multiple oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. Thematically, it absolutely it, works it, it out. It definitely but, yeah. matters and works. I just think like because you see so much beautiful animation and mm. then it just weirdly cuts to like a real dude and it kind yeah, of... If, standing it's, in front yeah, of the yeah, it freaks donuts me out. guy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, like, it kind of just comes out of nowhere and you kind of forget that real people, you know, like exist. Hmm. So yeah, it, it is super jarring at first, but it I feel like it's one of those things where I mean, when Spider-Verse first came out, people were saying that the animation was super jarring. Um and they've all grown accustomed to it. And I think that's just gonna be the case for, you know. Really? People did say that. Yeah, people were saying <laughs> like their eyes were straining and everything. Oh, I remember that being like a big complaint <laughs> is that like it was hurting people's eyes. Nah. <laughs> yeah, it's mad. I you know, it never bothered it. me, but yeah, I know. <laughs> I know that actually happened to to some people. So yeah, I just want to say that Miguel mm-hmm. is fucking unhinged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That man yeah. is straight up crazy. Like he's not just like angry. He's not stern. He's insane. Mm. <laughs> I don't know how anyone follows him. That man is off his fucking rocker. What else do I have to say? This. Spot, played by Jason Schwartzman, by the way. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, such a random casting choice that's very perfect. But played perfectly, yeah, true. Yeah, but I love that, like, because it's Ben Schwartzman, and then he's first introduced as, you know, as they say, villain of the week. Yeah. You know, I love that, like, he's so goofy, and they proper play into the goofiness of Mm -hmm. comic book villains. Like I said earlier, I'm sick of you know, realistic adaptations of these characters. I want to see the stupid comic book versions of these characters. Mm-hmm. And and contrasting um, that with the with his obsession to become his arch nemesis and not the villain of the week. It's a great Yeah, but yeah, that's I was just about setup. to get to that. So yeah, it tricks you because obviously it's a comedic actor in the very beginning of the film as well. They don't set him up like he doesn't have an old origin story that's and then he finally meets the hero at the end mm. you know he's just thrown at you at the very beginning of Miles's story yeah and you know he's a comedic character with a comedic actor so you don't really see it coming and then yeah he becomes a problem very fucking quickly mm-hmm. and then i love like the animation of him 
that like changes. Yeah. So you know, you know that like last shot you get of him, and it's like all just kind of like black horror scribbles. Mm-hmm. I hope that when they get to beyond the Spider Verse, they really kind of play up a sort of horror aspect of that character, because truly there is some horrific kind of thought process behind that. Yeah. I what what I'm hoping that they are gonna develop him into is. A w- slightly away of the goofy side of comedy and making him really sinister, dark, black comedy. Yeah, you know, no, the, that's the, yeah. that's the, the approach. I, I assume they are gonna still make fun and jokes with him. The concept of him just being able to grab wherever because he has those holes just uh, is perfect as a setup for so many jokes. So it's kind of dumb not to do it. But I hope that it's gonna be really sinister, dark humor with him next time. And I, I feel like that's where it's going. Oh, also, um, obviously I loved the designs of everyone. Mm-hmm. But the design of um, Spider-Man like India. Yeah. <laughs> fucking he sick. He was fantastic. I loved him. So great. Yeah. His, uh, the way he played with the yo-yo kind of thing. Uh, uh, yeah. That was fantastic. Uh, yeah. Great. Great character. Yeah, no. Absolutely amazing. Also, I do just want to get to one more quick point. How do you say his name? Is it Shamik Moore? Um, that plays Miles? I think it's Shamik, but I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I could be butchering that. But I just want to say that he is the first Spider-Man film actor to fumble the love interest in real life, and that makes me ashamed. <laughs> you know, Toby got um, Kirsten Dunst. Yeah. Andrew Garfield got uh, Emma Stone. Tom Holland got Zendaya. Yeah. And poor Shamik over here. He's trying. <laughs> I've been seeing the interviews. He's trying. Um, <laughs> she's just not buying it, man. So, yeah. Too bad. <laughs> he's, too he's, bad. he's letting me down here, man. I was rooting for you. Yeah. I have one last thing to add. Okay, which is it. that this had a one of a kind once in my life cinema experience moment, which I hold highly. Uh, like you know, it has mm-hmm. not a, not a lot of those. It's such a weird thing. I watched this in a packed theater, so uh, yeah. not a not a huge screening, but it was filled to the brim. And when they do the whole catch Spider-Man and then the Spider-Man meme. Yeah. Them pointing at each other. I have no idea why I did it, and I wasn't the only one, but I laughed so hard that I, just out of pure instinct, just out of pure instinct, I started clapping in that moment. And people Mm -hmm. around me did the same. And I never had that, that a whole crowd out of nowhere in the middle of a movie, not at the end, not at a film festival, not in the knowledge that people who worked on it are just actively here and partaking in this experience, just out of pure overwhelming joy to start clapping throughout a movie. I never had that. And I, it, it was fantastic. And my, uh, one of my best friends sitting next to me also had the same thing like we started clapping simultaneously and then after the movie we talked about it and we were like 
why did we even clap like i never clapped <laughs> it's such an odd thing the to do the only time i've ever seen that happen is in endgame mm -hmm. that's it mm -hmm. you know it, it, there's a few moments in there where i remember my theater cheering and clapping but yeah. obviously that's for very different reasons yeah, yeah, but sure. also it's kind of impressive that that one joke in <laughs> the second film yeah. um gets the same response as a you know a 20 year in the making film it's just super random. Yeah, also, so I just want to say, um, my theater experience was fucking dog shit. Oh no! <laughs> there was there was this like, it was a couple, right? Teenagers, like clearly like fourteen, fifteen years old. Mm -hmm. Dude and a a girl that he's obviously brought here, and he's doing that thing that teenage boys do, where like they're just trying to be loud and all this crap to like impress the girl mm. and he was just ruining it for everyone you know like he was just like shouting stuff in the middle of the film just saying like and trying to make like dumb cringy jokes mm -hmm. it was trying awful. to riff on the movie but not really yeah. being good at it <laughs> yeah no be like it's like almost hearing like you know when like someone says a joke in a room and it gets really awkward for a second and then everyone just pretends like it didn't happen? Yeah. <laughs> um, he did that to the room every five minutes. Damn. It was fucking unbearable. <laughs> yeah, no, if he wasn't 14, I would have told him to shut the fuck up. But, yeah. you know, he's a kid, so do what you gotta do. He'll <laughs> remember that in like five years and be fucking mortified with himself, so it's cool. Yeah, he's never gonna forget it. He's probably no. like... At uh, whilst we speak, he's sitting somewhere alone in his room and thinking about why he was so unfunny and that screaming. <laughs> yeah, I want to point out that this girl did not laugh once. Yeah, I assumed so. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that brings us to ratings. I guess it does. Do you want to go first? Oh, uh, sure. Right now, I have this at four stars. I assume, or like there's a possibility that once I return to it after watching Beyond the Spider-Verse, that I might think differently of it in both directions, possibly. Like, if the payoff is great and it turns out, oh my god, there were so many more setups in this across the Spider-Verse mm -hmm. that only really made sense afterwards, it might get higher. If my personal experience of a downgrade happens again then i might even think worse of this one but for now eight out of ten super strong movie still just a little overwhelming okay and i'm gonna give it also an eight pretty much for the same reasons i feel like one it needs room to breathe mm -hmm. you know i've only seen it once I need to see a film a lot before I can really gather my entire thoughts on it. I mean, like I said, I had the first one on a nine mm -hmm. for years before, you know, I came to the realization that I think it's a 10. So I'm, I want to give this room. And also with Beyond the Spider-Verse, there is very much a chance that it could go up. Mm. But I don't ever see it going up to a 10. Yeah. And Me that's either. why I have to give it an 8. Because if I give it a 9, I know I'm not going to bump it to a 10. <laughs> because it just doesn't work by itself. But if I enjoy it more, like once Beyond the Spider-Verse comes out, then what am I going to do? You know? 
So yeah, I'm giving it an eight just to give myself some breathing room, just in case I need to bump <laughs> it up. Right then, so I guess ratings are done. In the next episode, we are not going to discuss a current movie for a change, but take a little trip back to the 90s to discuss the unofficial Nick Cage action trilogy. Throughout 1996 and 1997, three different directors made separate, silly action movies with the one and only The Nick to the Cage. This glorious collection of over-the-top magic includes The Rock by Michael Bay, Con Air by Simon West, and Face Off by John Woo. If you don't want to get spoiled for these cinematic pieces of art, watch them by the next episode. <laughs> I'm George. I'm Crit. And you were listening to Two Euros Per Movie. <laughs>